Welcome to the Pardes Parsha podcast, brought to you by the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. I'm your host, Svi Hirschfield, and I'm excited to be here with you each week for a thoughtful and engaging discussion about the weekly Torah portion. Each episode, I'll be joined by a wonderful faculty member from Pardes to dive deep into the text, exploring its relevance and insights for our lives today. We will aspire to be creative, personal, and a little brave as we leave no stone unturned, seeking to bring out meaning and significance from each Parsha. And here's a request from us. If you enjoy our conversations, please take a moment to leave a five-star review for the podcast. Your feedback helps us reach more people with these important discussions. So whether you're a seasoned Torah scholar or a curious beginner, we invite you to join us on this journey of learning and discovery. With that, let's dive in and explore this week's Parsha together. Hello, everyone, and welcome. If this is your first time listening, then a big warm welcome to you. And if you're returning, then welcome back. We're excited you're with us. And I am privileged to have my first three-time podcast partner, Nahama Goldman Barish, is back. And we are here to discuss Parshat Pinchas. And so we're going to dive in. And I believe, Nahama, you have chosen the story of the daughters of Tzlovchad. And so please... Why does this story captivate you? Hi, Tzvi. Really excited to be back. And this really is one of my favorite stories. And it's one of my favorite stories because you see a real synergy, a partnership between these five women who stand up and use their voice, their collective voice as sisters, as the daughters of Tzlavchad, to petition God for what they feel is a lacuna in the law. And Moshe, without really blinking, really turns immediately to God. And so you have this partnership that is really quite unusual. And these five daughters are named three times in the Book of Bamidbar. It's astonishing because most of the Book of Bamidbar does not have names of women. Just let's take a step back for those of us who may not be listening with a safer open, but might be listening in their car. Remind us of the overview of the story of what happened. I'm actually going to read some of the verses oh, even because better. they're just so incredible. So we're in chapter 27 of Numbers. I'm going to read in the Hebrew and then quickly translate. And what you have is the daughters of Tzlavchad, and here we're really given the patrilineal lineage, right? This idea that they come from the Menasheite family, son of Hefer, son of Gilead, son of Machir, son of Menashe, son of Joseph, right? All the way back to Joseph. No mothers mentioned, by no the way, mothers just mentioned. to note. Yes. So here are the names of the five daughters. They've actually already been named a little bit earlier in the Parsha, where Tzlavchad is named, and because he has no sons, his five daughters are mentioned, almost a promo for what is to come. And then where's the meat of the story? Vatikravna, they drew near. Vita'amodna lifnei Moshe v'lifnei Elazar Kohen v'lifnei HaNisiim v'chol ha'ida petach ol moed lemor. I mean, just listen to the constellation of people they stand before of men. Moshe, Elazar the priest, the chieftains, the whole assembly at the entrance of the tent of meeting. There are no women there. And they get up and they stand together before these men. And what they say 
is, Avinu mate bamidbar, Vulo aya betocha ida ha noadim al Adonai baadat korach, kibacheto mate uvanim lo hayulo. It's an incredible unpacking of information, very, very intentional. Our father died in the wilderness, right? Everyone's dying in the wilderness. He was not one of Korach's faction who banded together against God, but he died for his own sin and he left no sons. And then here they go with their petition. Let not our father's name be lost to his clan just because he had no son. Give us a holding among our father's kinsmen. So... I'm imagining for the ancient reader, this is like a shocking thing. For modern people, like, what's the big deal? There are women who are demanding their inheritance. But for the ancient reader, as you said, they basically go to the Oval Office when there's a cabinet meeting, and all the leadership is there in front of the entire community, all men, and these women stand up and draw near and make a case for themselves on behalf of their family's lineage. And they really have such a strong voice, and they know what they want to say, and they know how to say it. And they're asking for land. And not even for the ancient reader is this so shocking. Even for, I would say, the Orthodox religious reader, women do not inherit, right? Men inherit, sons inherit. But they point out a gap in the system, a major lacuna in the system in that there are no sons to inherit. And then what's going to happen to their father's name and to their father's inheritance in the land? And so, Moshe doesn't even pause, right? He's not touching this. He doesn't have an answer. And so he immediately brings their case, their mishpat before God. And really, what's amazing is the brevity with which God initially answers. Really, four words. God says to Moshe, the daughters of Tzlavchad have spoken true. You know, I just want to ask your thoughts. It's very striking. In other situations, Moshe just acts, and he counts on God's support, like with the Korach story. He makes the trial. He does all this stuff. He doesn't turn and ask God. I'm wondering why do you think in this moment Moshe, instead of relying on his own intuition, immediately hands this over to God? I'll pause to say this is not the only story. This is the last in the series of stories. There are three other times where Moshe turns to God and doesn't know how to act. One is with the gatherer of the sticks on Shabbat. One is with the Pesach Sheni, those who missed the opportunity to bring the Passover offering because they were impure and want to know if they can have a do-over. And the third is the blasphemer, which you and I talked about, right? I actually went out of order. It's the gatherer of sticks, the blasphemer, and then the Passover Sheni whether there's a do-over. In all of those cases, they want to know how to apply the laws that they have in these particular situations, and Moshe turns to God. What's unique here is that the daughters of Tzlavchad actually present legislation. They're not asking how to apply law. They're asking for something unprecedented to be legislated. Now to answer your question, why do I think Moshe turns to God? Because I think Moshe honestly doesn't know how to answer this question. Which is so interesting. You know, you could say he's lost some confidence because of earlier episodes with the spies and other things that have happened that he's seen. You know, maybe he doesn't trust himself or maybe, you know, like you're saying, this is a legal question. And his assumption is, well, legal things are Torah, and Torah has to come from God, and therefore I need another revelatory moment to find out what to do in this case. I prefer that reading. 
I think this really is uncharted waters. What do we do? And God continues and expands on beyond what they even asked for and essentially teaches Torah in this moment. He says, the plea of Tzlavchad's daughters is just. You should give them hereditary holding among their father's kinsmen, transfer for their father's share to them. That deals with the daughters of Tzlavchad. But further, speak to the Israelite people as follows. If a householder dies without leaving a son, you shall transfer his property to his daughter forever after. If he has no daughter, the property goes to his brothers. If he has no brothers, the property goes to the father's brothers, and so on and so forth. In other words, God recognizes, right, there needs to be clear legislation here. I'll pause to say inheritance, as we know, is often some of the most contentious fighting within a family. And here we really get clarity as to who's going to inherit when there are no sons or daughters and so on. There's a clear path of inheritance. Unfortunately, that does not clear up all inheritance fights, but it gives some sort of trajectory, some sort of process, and it continues even after that. And really, as I said, it's actually just extraordinary. The courage of the women to step forward, to assert their voice in a situation where they feel in defense of their father's memory, that their father's memory is going to be lost. And there's something so unjust about that. Their father didn't have sons. He had no control over that situation. He had five children, all of whom were daughters, and they step forward. And essentially, they ask, and I would even go so far as to say, they really demand some sort of answer to this situation. And this allows Moshe to turn to God, who then says, oh, that can happen regularly. I myself, by the way, have four daughters. I have daughters of Tzavcha, daughters of Danny and Nechama. I'm going to name myself, right? But what's going to happen inheritance-wise is going to be they're going to inherit. But Danny is unblemished with sin, so the same situation <laughs> would never happen. But it's interesting, based on what you just said, not only is their case adjudicated, But because of them, we have more Torah. Because they brought this question forward, Moshe turns to God, and lo and behold, we get inheritance law written in the Torah where it didn't appear beforehand. Which really makes you wonder if more people had stepped forward at this time because of individual need. One wonders if the Torah couldn't have expanded even more. Who knows? And maybe more Torah would have had more people copy this plan. So tell me, what do the sages do with this story of apparently very strong women who are unafraid to draw near and ask for their needs? What is your sense of what the sages did with this both inspiring, but I'm also going to add potentially unsettling modeling of these women here in this story? So I'll say what's actually astonishing is that I'm not familiar with any midrashim, any rabbinic commentary on this story that is critical of the daughters of Tzlavchad. Wow. That also is actually quite astonishing. It's actually fairly unanimous that because God validates Cain Dovrot Benot Tzlavchad, there's nothing really to quibble over. And so Every parshanut, every commentary really leans into the justness, to the righteousness of the daughters of Tzlavchad. And, you know, the rabbis do what the rabbis do. The sages talk about how righteous they were, how modest they were, but also how wise they were for knowing when to speak. And so there's a lot of valorizing of these women for stepping up and most importantly, for claiming the land, for showing a true desire to inherit the land with the backdrop of all of the men who are constantly either denigrating the land, 
wanting to go back to Egypt, wanting to stay in the desert, right? Like these women step forward and fight for a portion in the land. And the backdrop of the book of Numbers are really the men, whether it's the spies who talk bitterly about the fate that awaits them in Israel, whether it's the multiple stories of let's just go back to Egypt, right? So the rabbinic commentary really leans into that and talks about how righteous these women are in wanting to stake a claim in the land. Especially in the backdrop of our Parsha, which starts out with dealing with the after effects of the men sinning with the women of Moab. So this is a real moment, I guess the sages are intuiting, where women are carrying the value of love of land of Israel and the future of the Jewish people in the land when the men are not succeeding. This is the best women can be, this kind of proactive engagement with Torah, with land, with wanting to fulfill God's prophecy or God's promise in the land. And multiple, multiple sources and commentaries really reflect that. I'll just share one of my favorites because I think there's a little bit of humor in it. It's in the Sifre to Numbers 133. Then came forward the daughters of Slavchad. When Slavchad's daughters heard that the land was being divided among the tribes to the males, but not to the females, they gathered to decide what to do. They said, God's mercy is not like that of flesh and blood. The latter's mercy is for males more than for females. But he who spoke and the world came into being is not that way. His mercy is for males and females. His mercy is for all, as it is said, he gives food to all flesh. And so I really love that because they recognize they're not going to get a fair day in court if they go to the Beitin, if they go to the tribunal of justice led even by a Moshe Rabbeinu. I was going to say, imagine this is a Beitin perhaps with Moshe, Aaron, and Yoshua, and the Midrash is still saying, nope, these men will not give women a fully fair shake. Their only hope is to go to the source of all justice, who is blind to gender on some level, and there they will find justice. Yeah, it's really astonishing, and it's a Tanaitic Midrash. I mean, it's a very early Midrash, pre-200 CE, and at least the content. And really, it reflects this awareness that men prefer men, and women do not get a fair you know, and they're talking about themselves. They're talking about themselves. Right? They're <laughs> reflecting on this idea. They obviously know inside that they also identify with the men that appear before them for judgment. And it's unbelievable that they're not afraid to acknowledge, yeah, we are in fact biased. And so these women had to go to God, who's not biased. Yeah, that is an amazing midrash. I know that you have some other later parshanu to share, which I would love to get into. So the clay yakar is contrasting the Miraglim really with, I think, he doesn't mention the daughters of Tzlavchad, but that Midrash that says the daughters of Tzlavchad wanted to go forth into the land, whereas the men cried over that possibility. He basically goes as far as to say the men hated the land. He quotes the Arizal, right? A Hasidic master, really, a Kabbalistic master who says the men hated the land because they only wanted to gather together and go back to Egypt. The women, the women loved the land because they say, give us a portion. And then the Klayakar quotes God as saying, we should have sent the women, right? The women really should have been the ones to go scout out the land. The women loved the land. The women wouldn't have come back to talk about the negativity of the land. It's so interesting because a lot of times, 
women are either ignored in many commentaries or women can only be wives and mothers. But these are not women as wives and mothers. These are women as potential leaders in the land. As spies who are going to scout it out for the military conquering of the land of Israel. And he really concludes and says, in my opinion, it would have been better to send the women. Right. Like going back to that portion of the spies, we should have sent the women. You know, it's interesting to think about why in their mindset they would think women would have a greater affinity for the land than men do. So we've talked about that. I think, you know, if we think about the land and what it represents, we think about women who nurture, women who take root, right? Women who are grounded, women who build families, who birth children. This idea that the land becomes a place where they can set up a home, right? It fits in well with our idea of the Eshet Chayil, the woman who has her portion of land and births her children and raises them up. And I really feel that rootedness that is reflected in owning land, in having a portion of land, the idea of bringing together Torah and mitzvot, so much of the Torah is about mitzvot having to do with the land. The idea that women are drawn to that space in which they can, again, I'm going to go back to be rooted with their families, engaging in God's work and following God's law and God's word, I think really speaks to the rabbinic commentary. I said that the Kleyakar is not talking about wives and mothers, but I will say that in the background is the idea that women want to go into the land to raise up their families. It's very interesting. The other thing I thought of, you'll tell me if you think this rings true, is I think they had a sense that women are more able to live with uncertainty, that men are drawn to power and control in ways that women are not, and therefore going into the land is filled with uncertainty, and the land is controlled by God, and God controls the rain, and all these fears about going into the land. And women are more skilled at living with less power and less control, and maybe even more emunah from that perspective. Oh, I love that, because every time a woman becomes pregnant and wishes to bear a child, there's uncertainty. The idea that women almost organically or naturally within their bodies live with the uncertainty of the creation of life and what's going to happen. And of course, every pregnancy is a risk both to mother and child. I say the uncertainty to their yeah. own health, not yeah. just to the future yeah. health so of I that think baby. That women are willing to take risks and live with uncertainty in a way that men prefer control, right? And power in a sense of like being able to hold on to. Women are willing to let go. So let's turn now. It's unavoidable, both because of what I know about you and your presence as an educator and a leader, sort of the personal takeaway for modern Jewish women looking at this story, particularly Orthodox women, I would probably put out there, but maybe not, and what this story of women who are not afraid to challenge or question or raise or demand their rightful place in a world controlled by men I have to ask what your thoughts are about this and how this resonates for you and who are role models for you in this way. Take it any direction you want. Okay, so I really think that if we go back 50, 60 years to the advent of women asking for a place in the Beit Midrash, right, opening the doors of Torah study. And really, this is not just in orthodoxy. In the Reform and Conservative movements, they want to have ordination because they want to have impact on the way Jewish community and Jewish engagement with tradition and ritual is going to unfold. And there are real fights that go on in each denomination as they step forward and try to achieve those goals. Since I grew up Orthodox, I'm going to talk about my own experience, and that is the world of advanced Torah study for women. 
And I think the daughters of Tzlavchad today are really the Rabbanit Malkabina, Rabbanit Chana Henkin, who started advanced Batei Midrash, right, houses of study for women in which women could study Talmud and Halakha, Jewish law at a very high level, also Tanakh at a high level, Nechama Leibovich, who really became a role model for many women in wanting to go as far as possible in studying Bible and studying Torah. I want to also call out Belda Lindenbaum, who brought the resources. It's not just the women who wanted to teach Torah. There had to be funding for that possibility. And really, there were women who stepped forward, you know, against Susie Hochstein at Matan and Belda Lindenbaum at Lindenbaum, many, many more. I'm just naming two that I'm personally familiar with, and Jeannie Schottenstein at Art Scroll. So I want to say the idea that women have resources, have money, have the ability to give also impacted the ability for the Malkabinas and Hannah Henkins and so on to create houses of study that then birthed two generations of women who excel at teaching and studying and answering questions in the areas of Torah, Talmud, and Halakha. And that has been really transformative and unprecedented. I just want to bring us back to the story for a moment. This idea of women having resources gives them a role and a voice. And maybe going back to our story, one of the reasons giving these women land is going to be important is because it will give them a permanent voice, a stature, a leadership role in society. I think education, first of all, allows people, if we talk about today, the contrast, right? The daughters of Tzlavchad are given a portion of land. I'll just pause to say that archaeologists have found ostracons from Samaria in the 8th century BCE with the names of Noah and Chagla. Now, ostracons are important because they really represent some of the business transactions that are going on at the time. And the names Noah and Chagla suggest that the families have taken root and have continued to have portions in that part of Samaria where the daughters of Tzlavchad would have settled for hundreds of years after, and that the names are the names of the women. That name has become the name of the area of land in which they settled. We also have the Shunamit in the Book of Kings, where she owns land, and really her relationship with Elisha is very much defined by her not needing to ask permission from her husband. And this idea that women who own land, who have resources, have a certain degree of agency, have a degree of power in determining what they're doing with their resources and giving them stature and honor and, again, the word agency and wherever they are is a very important precedent. And you see that today in terms of the partnerships between women in establishing opportunities for women to learn and teach and move into leadership positions in Judaism and in Orthodoxy in particular. So women with resources and women with Torah, that's the combination that can generate change, that can create a new Torah, if that's the model of the story, or additions to our Torah. The daughters of Tzlavchad actually do that well in the sense that they come and they ask for resources, and then they're going to turn it into leadership potential. I'd like to quote Rivka Lubitsch because I think what she says so beautifully is that the cynics of the generation used to say the mouths and hearts of Tzlavchad's daughters are at odds. They said they are acting to increase their own power. They are acting to increase their own wealth. They are acting in order to make their inheritance equal to men's. They are not acting for the sake of heaven. This is why the Torah stated, Slavchad's daughters speak truly because of their sincerity, because they speak what is correct. They are acting to increase their own power. They are acting to increase their wealth. They are acting to make their inheritance equal to men's. They are acting for the sake of heaven. It's beautiful. It's also that only God can truly know people's intentions, and therefore God confirms that their intentions 
are positive. And it's a reminder for everybody. I feel like the first way people want to denigrate change is to say the intentions aren't pure. The intentions are wrong. They're in it for themselves. And this is such a powerful reminder. We don't have that right to judge other people's intentions and to imply that their intentions are worse or ego-driven any more than anybody else's intentions. So I just have to ask you one more question. If you had an opportunity to bring your voice to the leaders of the generation and they would hear you, what would you ask for? That's a really good question. I think what I would ask for is more compassion in looking at the people in our generation, whether it's people seeking to convert, whether it's my students in the LGBTQ community who are seeking for connection to Torah and Mitzvot, whether it's women, whether it's Agunot, I would ask for more compassion and more fortitude and not acting for God. In other words, this sense of thinking, you know what God wants, or what can we do? This is God's will. I'd like more humility of the leadership. I'd like more compassion. I'd like more nuance. And I'd like them to see the pain and the suffering of those who are desperately seeking to be part of the community, to join the community, to be active and engaged with Torah and mitzvot and ritual and observance and practice in the community. I want them to use their leadership for the sake of heaven. Wow, that is a fantastic place to finish. If I can only say that in your case in particular, I know you try very hard to put your voice out there asking for those things, and we can all only hope and pray you get more opportunity and more people who are at the tent of meeting, so to speak, and control access that they will pay a lot more attention than perhaps they're paying so far. So I want to thank you very much for joining us today and sharing very powerful and inspiring words and insights and really connecting our Parsha to issues that affect us all the time, every day. Thank you, Tzvi, for the opportunity. Well, everyone, I wish you all, on behalf of Nacham and myself and all of Pardes, a Shabbat Shalom. Please tell your friends, if you like this podcast, to listen to this podcast as well. And we look forward to sharing more Torah with you next week. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to the Pardes Parsha podcast, recorded here at Nomi Studios in Jerusalem. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode and gained some new insights and perspectives on the Torah portion. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite streaming platform and leave us a five-star review if you enjoyed the episode. Your feedback helps us reach more people with these important conversations. Thanks again for listening, and we look forward to exploring the Torah with you again next week on the Pardes Parsha podcast. Shabbat Shalom.